though your worship guide says Acts 13, we're actually going to be Acts 11, 19 through the end. And let me start, as you flip there, or scroll there, with a question. And let's make it rhetorical for my own heart, uh, which is this. What do you think of when I say the word Christian? You might have positive connotations. It might be thinking of a specific church, thinking of a specific person, thinking of a grandparent, thinking of yourself, thinking of a tradition that you've been raised in or seen others raised in. You might be thinking through just specific liturgical traditions that happen to count. You could be having a very negative connotation. There's uh, a lot of work done, even I would have to admit by myself sometimes, to try to distance myself from a term, not because of the what the term means, maybe historically, but what the term might mean to the person who's using it in the moment. And finding it to be, all words have meaning and they all have meaning to the individual person who's trying to convey the meaning, right? And so there might be that moment where you're saying, I may be wanting to use that term, but I might not be sure I'm wanting to use the term for what you mean when you say that term. I don't want to be lumped in with the group of people who is in your mind right now. But I ask it for this reason, because in Acts 11, we're going to see two significant shifts in the book of Acts. The first one is geographical. The church is going to geographically shift from being centered in Jerusalem to now being centered in Antioch of Syria. There's two Antiochs in the book of Acts. One is later a missionary area that Paul shows up to, but he departs and begins sending missions out later in this book from Antioch. And Antioch is all of a sudden going to become a shift of what the church is doing and where the spirit is moving. You see God shift the Christians that were meeting, though they were not called that at this time, as we'll see, or at that time, moving them out of Jerusalem through persecution, and they find themselves filtering up into Antioch. And then from there, the spirit moving people there is going to launch out missionary journeys that are going to launch the church around the Roman Empire at the time. And partially because you can't get anywhere from Jerusalem in the Roman Empire without passing through Antioch. It becomes geographically strategic. And this is actually something that the Spirit of God, of God has done, not only in the Bible, but continues to do to this day, which is geographically shift where his presence is moving most palpably. We've seen it shift from Jerusalem to Antioch, from Antioch through the Roman Empire, from the Roman Empire across the seas to the Western Hemisphere. And from the Western Hemisphere, we now see it probably shifting south and east. That right now, this spirit is moving in most tangible ways, probably not in Western thinking countries, but in places like South America, in Africa, in Asia. And that's something that we shouldn't be afraid of. That's actually something that we should celebrate. God has been continually shifting where his spirit is moving most palpably all throughout human history. And when he does it, we say, praise God. That doesn't mean that 
there's not the capacity for the localized spirit to be doing something very powerful in our midst, but we can also at the same time celebrate what we see you leading most palpably in these parts of the world. And we can pray for that. We can be a part of that. We can send to that. But the second shift is not a geographical one, but it's one of title, in which we read in Acts 11, 19 through 30, that this is the first time that the word Christians is invented. Let's read with me, starting in verse 19. It says this, Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Anna, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number of people believed, turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For the whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. Uh, this took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. I don't want us to miss, as I first did when I was first studying this text, the fact that, again, we are seeing a new word being created into the ethos. And of course, all words are made up, right? Every single word has been created at some point to communicate an idea that is within a person that they need to get outside. And I mean, we see this at Dr. Seuss. I mean, there's the concept of a Grinch has been created by him, as well as guff, as in giving you guff, is a word that he created, and nerd. If you've ever called someone a nerd, you have Dr. Seuss to thank. If you've ever been called a nerd, which is now actually a term of pride and coolness in a weird way, you have Dr. Seuss to thank for that cool term that you have now. But there's also the ways that we create words now, which is just the verbify or adjective, adjectivifying of every word. Like you can Google something, or you can Facebook something, or you can YouTube something, which always makes me kind of want to like try to use that in a way that we like not as socially acceptable. Like, oh man, he McDonald's it or something, and just like let people figure out what you might mean. Uh, he added thousands of calories and supersized it. Uh, but regardless, we can create words because there's a concept that we have, searching something on Google that all of a sudden I can create it by a brand. And that is somewhat similar to what's going on here in this moment, is that we see a word that is created, not by the Christians. This wasn't the Christians getting together and saying like, man, we gotta think of our brand. We've been called by the way. We've been called by the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. And that's just not, like, takes up way too many characters when I tweet it. So we gotta get like a little tightened up over here. And so we could call us to the Christonians. And that doesn't work. All right, what do we got next? But instead, it was people outside observing them 
that when they reached at one point in the back of their minds to try to express and talk about the local group down the street, they just uttered Christians, which is a mashup of the Greek word for Messiah and the Latin word for group or ones. And so it's literally the Messiah group or the Messiah ones. And at some point, this term was probably created to be derogatory, no doubt. We see it used a couple other times in the New Testament. We see it at one other time in the book of Acts, when Paul is before King Agrippa, and he's proselytizing towards him, evangelizing the good news. And Agrippa says, Paul, do you want me to be like you, like one of these Christians? One of these Messiah ones. And then you see Peter using 1 Peter when he's saying, hey, if you suffer because you're a punk, that's on you. But if you suffer because you're a Christian, rejoice. And so though it was created originally to be derogatory, it eventually becomes the name that you and I most associate with ourselves. All of a sudden, a group of people in Antioch, not with what had formerly been called the way, reached the back of their mind and say, Christian. And it was accepted in such a way that everyone around them in that moment nodded in understanding. We know the group you're talking about. What was going on that made them invent a word, have to invent a word to describe these people? And so that's what I want to ask us today, and that's what I want to look at today, is what birthed a whole new title and nomenclature to describe what we're doing here today. And I think you see a couple instances of what's going on and what might be going on. And the first one is implicit and maybe obvious, but it's important. Which the first reason why they had to invent a word of people who were not a part of the way is that the way was open and involved in the city of Antioch. The people, it says that in verse 19, we're reminded the reason that they got there is that they were scattered because of the persecution, that people were dragging them out of the houses into jail. And so, so much so, this isn't persecution like being silently unfriended on Facebook, but this is persecution like you have to pack what you can in the middle of the night and get out of town and leave the rest. And they do. And then it says that many of them start then talking about Jesus and talking about the way, but they're only doing it with Jews. But then it says there's a few that could not be contained to just the Jews of the city. And they begin talking about Jesus to the Hellenists as well, the Greek-speaking Jews, those who would maybe be less likely to accept the message. But they say the Lord is with them, and it begins moving and begins shaping. Which is just something that we constantly have to, whether you enjoy being lumped in with a group or not, except to a certain extent, in some ways the only way that the church goes forward is a group of people that love the city and love people more than they care about what people think of them. 
I'm convinced that the number one toxic thing to any sense of leadership, and I'm not just talking like leadership, like being a CEO or being a pastor or being, you know, a small group leader or whatever. I'm talking like when I define leadership, we define it as influencing another to the good. Which any of you and all of you are that. And so when you have a desire to influence someone to the good, you ultimately, the most toxic thing that can be in your mind or soul is desperately caring mostly what they think of you. But whether it's shame, whether it's fear, whether it's guilt, it plays out the same. But regardless, you see a group of people that love the others that they want to influence more than they need something from them. And then beyond that, look at verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. And that verse 23, that was another verse that was brought before me, and I was like, how did I miss that? When he came and saw the what, for those who have eyes on it? You can talk back. It's a safe space. He saw the grace of God. Thank you. How do you see the grace of God? It's not tangible, typically. There was sometimes God, Jesus, the church connects it to tangible moments. Hey, this altar, this place, this is holy ground. Take your sandals off. This water in which you come into in this time is a identifying with my death in a way that has not been otherwise been privileged to you before. Identifying with this bread and this cup is in some ways a reminder, but in some ways more than that. And that when you take this, you are also partaking of the death and the resurrection with me. But regardless, most of us look at the idea of just walking into a place and Barnabas seeing the grace and saying, what is exactly he's seeing? And of course, it's just like C.S. Lewis talks about the sun. He says, I don't learn much about the sun by staring at it. But I look at all around me and I see its effects. I see light. I see heat. I see chlorophyll going through trees. And so I learn a lot about what the sun does, not by getting up close and personal or putting eyes on it, by seeing the effects of it. Grace and love be similar very uh, concepts in our world of that we see, and Barnabas likely saw, the effects of grace in a people. He saw people wrestling with and trying to appropriate the teachings of Jesus of Nazareth into their lives. Such as forgiveness. The true and honest absorption of someone's sin so that you do not in 
any way in the present or in the future, though you might have to wrestle your soul often to do so, give it back to the person to pay for. But you swallow it. You let it go into the grave with your bones, not theirs. There's nothing innate to the human soul that can truly do it. I can cover up and try to forget. I can try to push down. But a true, honest, regular wrestling with my soul to absorb someone's completely out-of-line behavior or action or thinking or words towards me and return it with love, with patience, with peace, with kindness, with joy, is a miracle of the Spirit every time. Repentance of sin. Again, I can move that desire that I'm trying to get filled by some specific sin issue in my life, the fruit of it, I can move it around so it kind of feels like I'm taking care of one thing, but really it's just traveling around and, and popping up like a whack-a-mole in other parts of my life. Or I can try to remain a level of high functioning that nobody can really tell, maybe even not me. But to actually have the honest work to confess and turn the other way. Not a one-time act again, but a lifetime of fighting back probably something that has been in your family for generations, if you look closely enough, and is based out of real wounds And being in a community, I mean, this is why the church is just so necessary. Being in a community of people that are going to continue to speak truth and embody grace to me when I fail is paramount to actually those wounds. Not just getting pasted over with a fresh coat of truth, which is helpful, but ultimately inefficient to actually take out the root unless I have somebody embody that truth to me over a long period of time namely the church. And he sees self-sacrifice for others. This is actually the one that we get a clear example on in verse 27. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, which I love the concept that prophets are rolling in squads these days, possibly because they often got stoned if they were wrong. So maybe they realized, hey guys, strength in numbers, as well as like any improv group, which I was once a part of. I don't have an idea. Look over to you and we'll see what we got over here. But prophets were coming from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place in the days of Claudius. He writes that because this famine that he talks about shapes the entire Roman Empire. We see almost throughout the New Testament regularly Paul going around. In fact, some of his missionary journeys are based out of the fact that he has to go around to cities and take a collection of an offering for the Jerusalem church. The book of Philippians is ultimately a thank you note saying thank you for sending resources due to this famine and also due to his imprisonment. And so, 
The disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers and living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Again, the idea of giving in a way that gives you no earthly gain. Because I can give, because yes, it might cost me resources, but I know in some ways it gains me reputation that I hope someday gives me more resources on the back end. Or it earns people into my good graces. But to give in such a way, truly with, again, only a sense of, hey, God sees even the the cold cups of water that you give that nothing goes unseen, is a miracle every time. And so, Barnabas sees these things or things like it working out in the Antioch church, and it says he sees the grace of God. And you know what actually I think is probably the most encouraging thing about that? Is that then Barnabas doesn't say, all right, finished product. Let's move on to Smyrna. But he goes and he gets Saul. He goes to Tarsus to get Saul. He sees the grace of God moving in the people. But probably what he sees are just seeds. Little, small flickers of the Spirit getting out. And a people that are apparently still enough of a work in progress that he finds it necessary to go to another city and bring Saul. Saul, who just a couple chapters ago was persecuting people. So apparently he even gets a guy that would have been a questionable reputation, but thought, hey, this is the guy that they need to receive teaching from. And that they work in the city for a year, teaching and discipling. And again, it wasn't even probably at that point where they just say, year's done, mission accomplished. This place is Jesus all over again. But they said, hey, we need to come and inject a sense of teaching and growth and discipleship to a group of people that it says he already saw the grace of God. And why is that encouraging? Because it makes it feel a lot like here. Of which we have some seeds of forgiveness, some seeds of repentance, some seeds of self-sacrifice and bearing burdens for one another. But As a church, we've only existed for six years. Oh, coming up on six anyway. And in a lot of ways, we're still in the starting gates. And sometimes I can grow impatient with watching mustard seeds grow into trees. But this text actually gives a bit of encouragement of Barnabas coming in, the son of encouragement, as he's called, and looking around and saying, you know, I see the grace of God in this people. I see the grace of God here. That's not Barnabas, that's me. I, Kent, see the grace of God here. And I have to be careful, because again, I can be... When it comes to spiritual gifts, um, I'm a, uh, like probably mostly in the prophet and the shepherd level. Of and that's not the only, you know, the five, the prophet, 
teachers, evangelists. I mean, that's just five examples of gifts. I mean, there's thousands of gifts that make up the image of God. Uh, but in, when it comes to those of which in Ephesians 4 it says God gave the church, it's primarily in prophet and shepherd. And I was, I've been told that by a few people who I trust more in these things to see them even in them in myself. But even uh, one who saw the early the prophet said, he said, yes, you've got to be careful with the prophet. Because the prophet regularly looks at the word of God and looks at culture and tries to bring the word of God to culture, which is a good and right thing. But when you're the one who's teaching week in and week out, you can sandblast people over time. And you can continually beat them over the head with truth when maybe what they need in that moment is encouragement. And you can continue to see all that's wrong even when somebody else might see the grace of God moving in that moment. Which is why when I vacation, I can't come here on Sundays because people can come here and see the grace of God. And in this moment, I'm just like, no, I can see like the 20 things that are going wrong in every single moment. But actually, I feel like in some ways, God's even working that out of me over time. He's putting seeds in me to say, yeah, who cares if that all goes wrong? By the grace of God, we can sit and have a moment and confess one to another in a park outside on Memorial Day. And yeah, and 20 conversations can go awkward, but five or six can be powerful and needed. And I don't have to have my identity on the line with that. The Spirit has asked that of me, nor will he, he ultimately give the glory to me. So why am I trying to fill in the gaps anyway? But regardless... I can be the person often who's seeing all the, the non-resourceful Enneagram 1 uh, is high with me, <laughs> which means that uh, I often call it the inner critic. And it often is built from ghosts in the past that were probably high critics, but I've internalized them and I've put them, turned the guns in on myself and I often turn them outward to others. But in this moment, I can be encouraged by a Barnabas who looks in and he says, man, I see what's going on and yes, it's young, and it's immature, and it needs growth. And it's not nearly, you know, you can't do nearly what you think you want to in a year, but you can do a heck of a lot more than you ever thought you could over 50. I'm reminded of a pastor who told a story of when he was in a monastery just trying to take like a, a silent retreat. And during one of the times when he's talking, he talks with a Catholic priest. And as he's talking with him, the Catholic priest says, you evangelicals baffle me in that you sometimes try to measure the kingdom of God in years and decades. When he said in the Catholic church, we measure it in centuries and millennia. And so again, I do see, I see people bridging and crossing lines with neighbors in different socioeconomic classes and different backgrounds. I see you having conversations with each other. I see people wrestling with forgiveness and wrestling with repentance. I see the seeds of people engaging the city. And there's so much of that that is going on in your lives.
secondly, of this group of people that views this people who Barnabas says he sees the grace of God in, certainly there must have been some level of Antioch seeing something different going on. But the other thing is, is that they see a distinction. Go back to verse 20 with me. Eh, let's start in 19. No, those who were scattered into the persecution arose over Stephen, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the words to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists, also preaching the Lord Jesus. Again, the reason, one of the reasons that this group has to be called of a new name is that they are devoted to making the name of Jesus known to people and discipling and shepherding people in the teachings of Jesus. Because ultimately they believe that none of the grace of God of which is seen in Antioch can be produced outside of Jesus being present in it. Which is something that I probably can pass over quickly, but it's probably a good question. Ultimately, do you believe that you can do any of these things outside of Jesus? Do you believe that the church can be shaped into any of these things outside of the presence and the teaching of Jesus? Because if so, then ultimately we're not the church. And the reason that they became so known for proclaiming Jesus is because, again, they don't have faith in any other system or factor to actually work. Sometimes I'm convinced the reason that I don't evangelize and you don't evangelize is nothing more than I still fundamentally believe some other factor will work in my life. Because it's been well established and proven. You talk about that which you find captivating. And yes, I ultimately in many ways find Jesus captivating, but on some level, I, when I think of, I hear somebody with a problem, I've got about 50 different solutions and programs and, and podcasts and books that I can hand to them. And while those can all be good and right and true and point towards Jesus, I sometimes try to think like, man, but like at some level, like there's no hope for this to ever have any movement whatsoever outside of Jesus, outside of his teachings, outside of his spirit, outside of his presence working into this person's life and planting seeds and having those seeds grow for a long period of time. Because ultimately, I sometimes reveal that what I believe in maybe more than Jesus is I believe in my own ability. I believe in my time-tested failure to eventually figure things out. But hope springs eternal. And so this people is just talking about Jesus and the fact that we don't get any other names in this passage of who these people are that are speaking the Jews, that are speaking the Hellenists. They don't know any other fact of the fact that they came proclaiming Jesus. Because as I've said before, there's nothing in the human soul that can create true forgiveness. There's nothing in the human soul that can create repentance, that can create true bearing of burdens and self-sacrifice. And that's not to say that every single human being is made in the image of God, and so there are going to be people that never proclaim the name of Jesus, never seek the name of Jesus, that are going to image him in beautiful ways, that are going to have marriages that put mine to shame, that are going to have parts of the grace of God, but to consistently, continuously, 
walk into places where you have to forgive and absorb grace and to not eventually isolate from it, but continue to run towards it. I just have never seen a human soul be able to have that capacity unless they're just pasting over it or, again, trying to isolate away from it. I've never seen somebody be able to bear burdens consistently without the sense of continually reminding themselves, yeah, but God sees this. God sees this. He sees this. Even the cups of cold water he's taking count of, he sees this. Maybe I do this and everybody actually thinks that nobody sees it or maybe you set out to do something and actually you get slandered and smeared mud on your name, but regardless, you say God sees this. I don't have to fight for that reputation or identity. God is ultimately going to see this and there will come a day in which he will make it plain. And so maybe ending with the question is appropriate to beginning with one. Who in your life, when you see them, similarly to the people of Antioch, you say, there is a level of their life that I have to come up with a new term. The term Christian has gotten too much baggage on it, and so I need to find a new term. Yeah, but they're really doing something that makes them look like Jesus. They're really doing something that makes them smell like him. There's something about his spirit and his presence and grace that's palpable. So I want to call him a Christian, but the problem is, is that has, again, so much loaded baggage in it. I just like need to come up with a new term to describe, yeah, but this person's really doing it. The spirit is really moving here. Who is that? Who have you seen like that? The good news is, is again, I could personally name a number of you. In fact, I got fresh eyes on our missional community leaders page just recently. If you're in a missional community, praise God, your leaders are, if you don't see them as those people, that's on you. You probably don't know them well enough. Because, man, I look at them and each one of them individually, I put eyes on their names and said, I see that in them. I want to use whatever that term is for them. And if you see that in people here, if you see that in people around you, let's not only encourage those people, but let's follow after them as they follow after Jesus, as Paul says. Christianity was never meant to be a do-it-yourself, take this home and figure it out over by yourself, but it was made to be done in community because you can't embody the Spirit to yourself often. In fact, maybe never. You need others. And may people look at us, and whether they call something old or call something new, the, the connotation is clear. They look at our church over time and say there's something about what they're doing that I have to come up with a term to say but I really see the spirit there let's pray Father God your spirit is again ultimately 
the only presence that is going to be able to produce actual fruit, not just something that we can game theory or something that we can do for a season and lose or something that we can be use a incentive structure of reputation or of approval or of something else to do, but true fruit that comes from a root of people that find themselves completely loved and completely secure in Jesus. And also find ourselves regularly captivated by his teaching, his life, so that we too begin to look and smell like him. And so that we continually find whatever that word is to describe those around us. And those around us continually use that word, whatever it is, to describe us. And Lord, again, that is birth of your spirit, is birth of your presence. And so we ask to position ourselves to be in a place to receive it. And follow after those who are following after you. In Jesus' name, amen.